0: welcome to the second episode in a series of podcasts from copper consultancy specialists in communications and engagement for the complex infrastructure and development sectors my name is rory puxley account manager here at copper and host of this special two-part episode on the cop26 climate change conference in the first half of the episode we will be joined by sam cranston Director of Energy Infrastructure at Copper, who spent a week up at COP in Glasgow, where he spoke on a panel hosted by Solar Energy UK and the Global Solar Council, in addition to helping organise a panel discussion hosted by Copper as part of Renewable UK and Energy UK's Energy Transition Hub. Sam will share his take on the events and conclusions on the conference agreement that went right to the wire at the end of the two weeks in Scotland. In the second half, Copper Managing Director Martin McCrink and Account Manager Zoe McLernan will share their insights as part of a copper team that produced a recent report on public attitudes to net zero and infrastructure. Martin, Zoe and I will discuss what COP means for net zero in the UK, the vital question of who pays and what this means for infrastructure. The conference was opened by a powerful rallying cry from the veteran naturalist and documentary maker Sir David Attenborough, who outlined the deterioration of the global climate and the urgency of addressing the decline to hundreds of world leaders and delegates, including presidents, prime ministers and princes from the world's most powerful nations and from the smallest. Though the audience notably did not include Chinese President Xi Jinping or Russian President Vladimir Putin, both major polluters in their own right. So David, focus world leaders' attention on the number that determines the heat of our planet, the concentration of carbon in the world's atmosphere.
1: We now understand this problem. We know how to stop the number rising and put it in reverse. We must have carbon emissions halt them this decade. We must recapture billions of tonnes of carbon from the air. We must fix our sights on keeping one and a half degrees within reach. A new industrial revolution, powered by millions of sustainable innovations, is essential and is indeed already beginning. We will all share in the benefits. Affordable clean energy, healthy air and enough food to sustain us all. Nature is a key ally. Whenever we restore the wild, it will recapture carbon and help us bring back balance to our planet. And as we work to build a better world, we must acknowledge no nation has completed its development because no advanced nation is yet sustainable. All have a journey still to compete so that all nations have a good standard of living and a modest footprint. We're going to have to learn together how to achieve this, ensuring none are left behind. We must use this opportunity to create a more equal world, and our motivation should not be fear, but hope.
0: Sam, that was an impassioned introduction to COP that could leave no doubt as to the gravity of the issue that climate change presents to humanity. When you were at COP, did you get the sense that world leaders were now taking the likes of Sir David more seriously, to the extent that diplomatic commitments and fine words will now become delivered actions and established policy in the coming years?
2: Hi Rory, good to be on the pod. You're absolutely right, it was a very impassioned and stirring start to the conference. I was fortunate enough to be in Glasgow during the first few days when world leaders and dignitaries descended on COP, and you could definitely sense the magnitude of the moment, not just by the substantial police and security presence that was there. On that Monday morning, for the first day of COP, every newspaper in Britain and many across the world led with doomsday predictions and rallying cries that now was the time for action. And it certainly felt like this COP was the last chance to turn the tide of the climate crisis, and that, in fact... If change didn't happen now, then we'll soon be at a point of no return. Interestingly, though, the mood quickly seemed to shift in those early days from one of doom and gloom to a much more optimistic outlook, which was swiftly coined COPTIMISM. We had some big announcements during the time the world leaders were in the blue zone, including pledges to end and reverse deforestation, reduce methane emissions and financial commitments towards clean energy. But despite these early pledges, what everyone kept coming back to, including Greta's blah, blah, blah message, was that talking was not going to be enough, and it certainly wasn't going to save the planet. COP26 had to be about action and firm commitments to change. What I found fascinating as the 197 world leaders got their few minutes on the podium, all eyes were on the big carbon emitting nations like India and the United States and what pledges they would announce. But it was actually the world's smallest nations that provided the most poignant and evocative speeches. None more so than Tavalo's foreign minister, who, if you recall, gave his speech fully suited and standing knee-deep in seawater to show how his low-lying Pacific island nation is on the front line of the climate crisis. Coming back to your question, Rory, of whether leaders are now taking this more seriously, I think the answer is yes. But clearly, we'll now need to see the words of the COP fortnight put firmly into action over the years and decades to come.
0: So as you say, Sam, the media was obviously very interested in this for the two weeks of the COP conference in Glasgow. But is there a danger that as with the political cycle, the media cycle, you know, quickly moves on to different issues of the moment, and these kinds of big commitments, big words don't tend to get followed up by consistent action?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Rory. And as I mentioned before, it was on that first Monday, having Every newspaper in Britain with a front page on climate change was something probably unheard of before. But the news cycle quickly moves on. So I think there has been a step change in public opinion. And I know you're going to come on to talk about that later in the pod. And it will, I think, the pressure that people and the media continue to put on, whether it's our leaders and global leaders to make this stuff happen, is going to be vital to its success. And you talk about news cycles, we talk about political cycles. We're in a world now where we're on three, four, five years, sometimes shorter cycles, particularly in the political world. So it's going to be critical. This isn't a short-term problem to solve. It is is a long-term problem to solve. And we absolutely need to keep that pressure on those world leaders who were, were gathered there and those that come after to continue with the pledges and commitments and go even further than what was set out in Glasgow. And it's part of unblocking this
0: short-termism in delivering long-term solutions that there now is a growing consensus between left and right that this is an important issue for governments to take seriously, the public clearly think it needs to be taken seriously, and the impacts on lots of different areas of policy. So are we starting to see a consensus emerging? And is that why this COP is different to previous COPs?
2: I'll show my age slightly here and admit that Paris was the first COP that really caught my attention, and it was only as the Paris Agreement was signed that I recognised the importance of that particular conference. What I found interesting from some quarters during this COP was their emphasis that this was COP26, meaning there were 25 previous summits and attempts to tackle climate change and arguably not to great effect. As you referenced there, the backdrop of this summit was that previous commitments had not been met, particularly around funding from richer nations and pledges to reduce emissions had not materialised. That's where Glasgow felt different, whether it was because it was hosted in the UK, but as I mentioned earlier, the magnitude and significance of this COP was palpable and it garnered media attention before, during and after the conference. So yes, I do think it felt different and hopefully we'll see different results from this summit.
0: I know that you attended a couple of events held by solar industry bodies, Solar Energy UK and the Solar Council. Was there anything new announced at these events that maybe the media hadn't picked up?
2: I think what was really interesting to see from those events was actually we're doing an awful lot in the UK, which is is good, and the progress that we've made, whether it's solar or wind or on renewable energy and clean energy in general, is extremely progressive and something that I do believe we should be proud of. Clearly, our our own progress isn't coming without its challenges, and I'm sure we could uh, spend a whole podcast talking about that. But I do believe that what I saw and what I heard from the panels and events that I was part of was that there's some really good and positive things happening in the industry, which will make the UK a leading force in, in tackling climate change in the future.
0: COP President Alok Sharma was emotional at the end of the conference after two long weeks of painstaking negotiation, diplomatic wins and compromises, one of which was the last minute amendment to a key line of the COP agreement to phase down coal, replacing the earlier drafted commitment to phase out coal at the behest of India and China. As he brought the conference to a close with evident disappointment at the new wording, Mr Sharma had to pause to compose himself.
1: I apologise for the way this process has unfolded and I'm deeply sorry
0: I also understand the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. This was all within the context that no previous COP agreement had included a specific commitment on coal. but even so, the last minute softening of language left many, particularly climate vulnerable and island nations, frustrated or furious at this late concession. From your perspective, Sam, was the mood of departing COP delegates one of optimism or disappointment?
2: On the whole, I think it was optimistic. As you covered there, the change in wording was disappointing, but at the same time to have coal mentioned in any form was a big step forward. And as has been noted elsewhere, we, we know how difficult it is to get four mates in your WhatsApp group to agree where to meet for a drink, let alone getting 197 countries to agree to exact wording in a document of this magnitude. I guess the biggest challenge you can now is that time is running out for baby steps or slow progress. When the numbers were run on what the pledges from COP would result in, the world is still nowhere near its goals on limiting global temperature rises. So action is needed and needed now. And of course, as you mentioned, the absence of China and Russia remains huge cause for concern. As I mentioned just now, what was encouraging from the events and panels that I was involved with, particularly with Renewable UK and solar UK, was that the UK really is leading the world on, on much of this and that it's something we should be proud of, as I noted, especially on renewable energy development, the targets we are setting. Of course, Delivering on those targets isn't going to be easy, but we certainly are moving in the right direction and at a good pace. What was stark, though, was talking to developers and others in the industry who are working across other nations, particularly those heavily reliant on fossil fuels, is just how far they need to shift, both in public attitudes and the delivery of clean energy. But having said all that, I'm personally still optimistic, and I think we have to be. We have to believe that we collectively can make the difference for our children and our future generations. And it's a massive challenge, but we have to get it right. We have no choice but to get it right. And COP26 has given a platform, I think, to push on and and make that positive change.
0: Just coming back to the start of the question, Sam, the focus on coal dominated the media analysis immediately after COP, but notably little was said about oil or gas. Was this developed richer nations letting themselves off the hook and putting the onus on the developing world, much of which still relies on coal as a means for developing
2: their economies? It's a really good question, Rory. Has it let them off the hook? Oh, it's a tough one. I think you can see where those nations stand in their argument that we as as Western civilizations have benefited off the back of coal for two centuries and, and we are where we are as we can be classed as rich nations because of our industrial heritage. So you can see that the the label of hypocrisy, label on the on the West, can be justified in those nations. But you know, as I say, I think we as the UK and, and others who are classed as developed nations now are pushing on with new technologies and new opportunities of how we develop clean energy and I think it's our job to really support those nations to be able to develop those types of technologies as well and get them to move beyond coal to be able to deliver the targets and the challenges that we face.
0: In the second half of this episode we focus on the concept of net zero within the context of COP26 outlining the public's understanding of the term and what can be done to achieve net zero drawing on a recent public attitude survey conducted by copper where we measured public attitudes to infrastructure over a five-year period to understand the sentiment around key areas of the infrastructure sector now at the start of this discussion it's important for us to define our terms Zoe What exactly is net zero and how does it differ from the similar sounding term carbon neutral and perhaps more importantly, what does net zero mean to the average person in the UK?
3: Put simply, net zero refers to when all greenhouse gases being emitted into the atmosphere are equivalent to the greenhouse gases being removed on a global scale. Now quite often The term net zero is used in conjunction or in a similar way to carbon neutral. Carbon neutral is often on a more tangible level um, and looks at kind of reducing carbon as much as possible while offsetting at the same time. So in terms of what that means to the everyday person, while they understand the concept of reducing carbon and those net zero targets, quite often they think about the benefits of net zero as part of that. In particular, they feel that will deliver better energy services for us in the UK, better opportunities on a global scale for the UK, such as exports and imports. And ultimately, 41% of the people we spoke to believe that net zero will improve their quality of life.
0: Is there any need, do you think, for differentiating these terms and better communicating what it means to be carbon neutral and what it means on net zero? Because we hear a lot about net zero, a lot about carbon neutral. And even though they are slightly different, as you've defined, they are used synonymously in in many cases.
3: Yeah, there is a lot of crossover between the two. Fundamentally, they are the same thing. You know, we're looking at making sure that we're reducing our output of carbon and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. It's important that both terms are used because they have different applications for different areas and different issues. So if you think about net zero, that is a target. You know, the UK was the first country to input that net zero target into their policies. And for me personally, it feels, you know, much more of a bigger scale issue and topic than, say, carbon neutral.
0: Martin, one of the early findings of the report was that a majority of the public believe individual actions to address climate change have more impact than government legislation. This is something that was acknowledged in the COP26 agreement, which recognises the role of Indigenous peoples, local communities and young people in addressing climate change. But in the knowledge that 20 corporations create a third of all carbon emissions and that the top three national polluters in China, the USA and India produce over half of global carbon emissions, despite only representing 40% of the world population, is this belief in the power of the
4: individual in determining global climate misplaced? Thanks, Rory. It's a really complex area about public responsibility. You're right, there's about a 12% lead, if you like, in the polls for people that think that personal responsibility is more important than government legislation interesting there's a gender split around that as well more men want legislation than women what we find around this is that the importance of personal behavior is also split between work and home as well people take responsibility at home and they recognize it's their job when they're at work people tend to believe that it's not their problem it's an employer's problem to, to look after it so that causes a tension if you like within responsibility we looked in more detail about how people feel that they should take responsibility for infrastructure projects. And what I mean by that is their reaction to it. And what we found is that people believe that climate change is, after COVID, is the most important issue that we need to address today. What we find is that people also find localised issues more important to them than climate change. So we examined it in a relatively complex manner to draw out the fact that when you ask people what's really important to them, it is the issues that affect them on a day-to-day and climate change is still kind of seen as one of those quite big amorphous issues that, although you want to be responsible for it, you, you don't, and you don't want heavy legislation, there is a limit to what you as an individual can do. The flip side to that is when we look at what people's actions can take, there is nothing more local than climate change, really, in that it's your responsibility, but it's still seen as a global issue, so that there is a disconnect between this global problem and what you can do yourself. We find that when we look into where people want to, if you like, prioritise their efforts, it is on their activities and and what they can be responsible for. The flip side of that as well is that people actually want governments to be more bold than they would be as individuals. They see activity that they need to take control of and actually they look at governments and they say, I want you to do more than I personally would take responsibility for. That could be a reaction to COVID and how people have seen government intervention change over the last few years with restrictions with furlough they've seen government act and actually there is a response to that which is tends to be positive we can't really tell that for sure from the study we've done but there's certainly an appetite for leadership in this area there is a balance to strike between how much government can push this given we know that people do want personal responsibility versus government legislation and it's a tightrope and you see different governments responding in a different way you see our government is kind of doing a mixture of investing in low carbon technologies to help you live the life you want to live without making too many changes but at the same time pushing us more to change behaviors so i think that there is a balance to strike in this and we will probably end up with a mixture of both one thing i would say from the research around this is that you can see that government really has understood what the public wants and it's that kind of middle ground of dealing with both areas is dealing with its core voter
0: base So in that sense, Martin, can global problems have local solutions and can local problems have global solutions?
4: I think from the public's perspective, the two are interlinked. As I said before, there is nothing more local than climate change because you're responsible for it and it impacts you as well. I think we as an industry have a job to play in this really, where projects come along and they're too often seen as something that's happening to or in a community or in an area and the climate change story isn't particularly clear, often that is seen as big government coming in, doing something, upsetting people, or it's seen as company coming along and wanting to do something. I think if you flip that round, and we realise the contribution that these projects make to achieving a net zero target, even if those projects themselves don't tell a net zero story, it's still driving us towards an end goal. And the public actually is really accepting of that as well. They don't expect every single project to be net zero. They're expecting that story to be told. Also, the days are numbered for projects not to be able to explain their story around net zero, saying we're not sure it might have this impact. No, no, that's over. The public is going to call us out more for that. And they're not wrong either, because there is potential for a bit of hypocrisy going on in the public's mind about how this works if we don't explain ourselves properly properly. So to answer your question about local versus global, I think there is an example to set because we can't ask the public to do one thing and then the perception is that everyone else does something else, even if that's not the truth, that we haven't bothered to explain it properly or we haven't got round to it or it's not required in process, that's going to cause a problem. And in our sector, there's not many levers government can pull to really get us to net zero other than asking us to emit less legislating for companies or encouraging companies to do less, incentivise them or build a low-carbon economy. So that lever needs to be protected. We've got to make sure that in our industry, we help our clients and our industry protect it. A really important question when it comes to this topic
0: is who pays for net zero? There was real anger at COP from delegates of climate-vulnerable nations at the failure of richer countries to follow through on financing commitments on tackling climate change made at previous COPs. At the beginning of the conference, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, had the following stinging summation of these failures in her speech to an audience of world leaders, including Joe Biden, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron. You can really hear the anger in her voice.
1: Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust.
0: Copper's report into Net Zero found no consensus when it comes to paying for the policy on an individual level, with 29% of respondents to our survey believing that there is no fair way to cover the costs of addressing climate change. This finding was perhaps consistent with the larger problem of green financing, which was a major point of discussion at COP26 in the context of the broken 2009 commitment alluded to by Prime Minister Motley, whereby richer nations had agreed to be providing $100 billion of climate financing to smaller and developing nations by 2020, a deadline which has now been pushed back to 2023. Zoe, if I could come to you first on the question of who pays on an individual level, despite being a popular policy, taxation isn't a popular source of funding. So are people hoping that when it comes to the bill for net zero, someone else, possibly younger generations, will be picking up the tab?
3: There seems to be a lot of uncertainty among the general population as to how we can pay for net zero. As you say, taxation is the least popular option. And partly I think that is because people like to know where the money's going. You know, for taxation for a lot of people is a pot of money that just disappears into government departments. So there is a willingness from individuals to pay more towards net zero and towards green infrastructure. But that's on the basis that they can continue with the same behaviours that they are operating under today. Only 36% of the people we spoke to were willing to pay more tax, with 46% opposed. So really, there is no consensus. But I think there is an understanding that without picking up the tab now, it will end up falling to younger generations. So some nuanced thinking is really needed when it comes to how we're going to pay for net zero. With taxation kind of out the question for many people, it becomes quite a difficult conversation. So we have found that as age increases, the acceptance to pay um, for net zero reduces. So 60% of 16 to 24-year-olds and 56% of 24 to 44-year-olds are willing to pay more, which is compared to around 44% of those aged 45 and above. So there is you know, a willingness across the age groups, but you can see that divide as the demographic changes. So there is some work to do in this area. And I think we need to be thinking in a outside the box, really, when it comes to that question.
0: So could that possibly relate back to what we were just discussing on global versus local? Would people possibly be more inclined to um, pay the unpopular taxes if they knew it was going to local projects rather than national projects?
3: Potentially, yes. We've discovered through this work that people are very focused on the local benefits and the local issues to them and how things impact their daily lives as well. So I think that could be uh, a better and a more positive way of paying for net zero within any form of taxation needs to go into a direct green fund, as outlined in some of the work we've done talking to individuals about paying for net zero there needs to be a direct fund that people know is going to go towards that
0: cause. If I can now come to you, Martin, on this question from a macro perspective, despite the failure of rich nations to reach the 2020 commitment on green financing, a new and more ambitious commitment is due to be set for 2025. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair has stated that big renewable projects need to be investable, with innovation needed to introduce a financial incentive for private investment in the likes of carbon capture and storage how can governments unblock this seemingly insoluble problem of investment failing to match up with stated ambition? Is a profit incentive the answer when it comes to net zero, or is the pursuit of profit part of the problem?
4: It's a really interesting question, Rory, and I think it's an area where governments and society is, is struggling because we live in a world that is needing to operate to achieve net zero, and we're structured in a way as as it's been for generations and hundreds of years. I think there's two areas where government can help and where society can help. One is around the models we create, the other is around incentives. With the models, we've seen a change recently from government where they've introduced the regulated asset base for nuclear, RAB, and that is designed to encourage investment by taxpayers paying for investment at the start of a project, rather than just when it starts generating, which is what's happened with offshore wind And onshore wind, we contract for difference as well. That's where you're paid once your asset starts generating. We've seen it with Thames Tideway. That's how that project was funded. And I think we might see more of that to encourage projects that particularly require capital investment up front. Secondly is the price of carbon and the emphasis we put on that and, and the market that that creates as well. I suspect we'll see a lot of changes over that in time. And it's a really complex area that we know government is looking at now and industry is looking at. And I think once that gets up and running, there will be a, a certainly a, an incentive to behave differently and operate differently that companies will have to factor into to how they operate. And In many ways, you can't just blame the private sector for needing to make changes just because it should. Again, it's a system that's designed to do a certain thing. There's got to be those those opportunities in there for a sector to change. And you mentioned at the start of the um, podcast, Rory, about the personal responsibility or company responsibility. I think it's all interlinked, really. It's got to be about are we as individuals happy to, to change the way that we fund projects as well? Are we happy to be taxed in a different way? What we found from our research is that the one consensus that comes out of it is that there is no consensus on how to pay for this in a, in a fair way. As Zoe said, taxation is really unpopular. We might find a slight shift in how we describe taxation if it becomes a bit more focused on what it's for, and people are more accepting of it. That might see a change. What we do find is that from the polling we've done, people that voted for the Conservatives in the last general election are the least likely to to accept that. So it's a complicated area for government to balance. And obviously, we've seen. The way that the Chancellor's talked about taxation as well is clearly an uncomfortable area for the government. And it's not going to get easier without changes around models and the carbon market, I'd say.
0: So do you think that government and industry need to move from their current position where individuals and companies are encouraged to act rather than their behaviour being mandated by governments? This is, of course, in the context of COP, which isn't a global regulator and doesn't hold sovereign governments to account.
4: I suppose if you take a step back and think about what government's doing, it's got a legally binding target to hit. So if you put yourself in the shoes of government, you've got to think about the tools available to you to be able to hit that target. And given government direction and the evidence that we have as well, I don't think government's going to want to go down the mandating route unless it absolutely has to. It's more likely to want to encourage people to take decisions themselves rather than force it on them. The question that the government will have is when we get closer to that deadline... How do we feel about it and how close are we? If you take the net zero by 2050 deadline, at the moment, it's a kind of deadline that's a little bit vague to us. But if we took an approach that was much more like the Olympics in that we had a deadline to hit and there's a big clock in Trafalgar Square and tells us what we're doing, I think you might drive a different kind of behaviour that would make us think differently about it. At the moment, do we really know what the consequence beyond the 1.5 degrees and that campaign if we're there or thereabouts, is that okay? I wonder if there is a job to do to really drive this as a deadline that's looming on us. In the final topic of today's episode,
0: we will consider what net zero means for infrastructure. Copper's report found that public expectations of industry's response to climate change has been raised in line with an increasing awareness of the issue. Zoe, when it comes to nationally significant infrastructure projects, there are of course a number of competing factors from boosts to the economy, and society such as increased efficiency and job creation to replacing roads, railways and interconnectors that have passed their use-by date with greener alternatives. Where are the public's priorities when it comes to infrastructure and net zero? Are they willing to compromise?
3: There's definitely a willingness to compromise overall, but ultimately The support for infrastructure projects comes down to some quite local, tangible issues for individuals. So in terms of prioritising net zero and emissions, when we're looking at major infrastructure projects and new projects across the UK, generally the population supports the local benefits, the impact on the economy, benefits for their society and the quality that that will bring to their lives over and above net zero and emissions. There's a the potential for that to change but ultimately we're seeing local people care more about those direct local impacts on themselves their families and their communities perhaps that's because net zero and emissions isn't felt in the same way as for example a better road connection which is going to stop them getting stuck on the road on the school run or on the way to work um, and reduce congestion as a result. That's a much more tangible reason to be supporting an infrastructure project for your everyday person. And ultimately, we as individuals need to be able to feel that tangible effect, I think. And so I think that's where those priorities lie at the moment. So the support for infrastructure projects does vary across projects understandably only six percent of people we spoke to said they would oppose any new infrastructure project but in terms of those individual reasons for opposing a project noise the visual impact construction disruption all sits above Net zero in terms of opposition to any kind of development or construction activity. So while net zero is a factor and does come into people's thinking, it still remains the fact that those tangible issues again, as I, as I spoke about just now, such as noise and the visual impact of a project are going to sit above net zero and climate change as a reason for objecting to major infrastructure projects across the uk
0: and martin while the public are becoming increasingly aware of the impacts of climate change this represents a challenge to new infrastructure projects with net zero as a potential reason for opposition what challenges do you see ahead on the so-called road to net zero with the significant amount of construction of new
4: infrastructure that will be needed to reach its destination by 2050 There are not many sectors where this becomes really tricky. So we've looked into this a fair amount. And what we find is that when you ask people about reasons they would be opposed to something, as you said earlier on, climate change and net zero is on the list, but it's not actually highest. Understandably, people's approach is much more about what about me and what about my life and what about what I do today and tomorrow, less about global issues. How people communicate is different. So what I mean by that is that, what we've found is that what people will say is a reason they object would be climate change, what they think is different. But that doesn't stop the fact that climate change is going to be a really, frankly, easy tool to have a go at pretty much any project that involves building something, pouring any concrete, producing any steel, making any changes. It's a good argument to say why well, you shouldn't do something, but it doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't actually solve the problem we have. So what do we do about it? I think our solution is going to have to be That we start to get much more on the front foot about how projects relate to each other, how our clients relate to each other, how industry is reaching a common goal. I think one of the gaps is a common narrative. At the moment, each project is telling its own story. When we ask the public to join our story, we're already about chapter four or five. They are catching up on the narrative we're already on. The consequence of that is that each project, each client is retelling the story from scratch And having to explain how this individual project it's trying to build in location X relates to this global challenge. And here's why it's not exactly net zero, but it's it's pushing us in the right direction. And it becomes very complicated. It's a very difficult argument to win, frankly, especially when you're talking to people that haven't got the time to listen to you explain complexity to them. They they, they really don't. So I think we've got a job to do to, to, to tar that together to give are set to the chance to actually explain itself in a much more compelling way. The flip side is that where people do understand what's going on, there is an assumption that people just will just react in an illogical way, but that's not really true. You do actually get understanding from people at large about what's going on. The mistake that we could make is only have a conversation with people that don't like what each project is trying to do and assume that that is the story whilst ignoring everybody else so everyone else becomes the audience. They're not actually involved in the conversation. And we've got a job to do to make sure that we're not just having this project by project conversation over and over again that's just going to compound this problem. As we get closer to the net zero target, the questions will become more intense from the public if they don't understand what we're doing. Now I'm not asking the public to just suddenly just understand what how this sector works, because I think it's on us to explain ourselves in their language in a way that it means something to them. So it is going to continually be a reason to oppose projects, but it's up to us to deal with that. And we can't blame people for raising that as a concern.
0: My thanks to Sam, Zoe and Martin for sharing their thoughts on COP26 and net zero. In our next episode, we will explore the political reaction to COP and what the goal of reaching net zero by 2050 could mean for the British political landscape over the coming years. To wrap up this episode, a final word to COP President Alok Sharma. I propose that the revised proposal is adopted as orally amended. A revised version, a written version, will be issued shortly. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Copper Consultancy on COP26 and Net Zero. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more about what we do here at Copper, please visit our website at copperconsultancy.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter, Copper Wire, or follow us on LinkedIn at Copper Consultancy or on Twitter at Copper Consult.